text this morning is from Acts 9, verses 1 through 9. This is God's word about Paul's conversion. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 32, stanzas 1, 2, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, in one of his letters... Paul writes that God sends a strong delusion to those who refuse to love the truth and believe what is false, 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul knew what he was talking about because that's what he himself was like before his conversion. Even though he was convinced in his own mind that he was a righteous man in God's sight, he nevertheless was blind to the truth. He did not see himself for who he was, and he did not see God for who he was either. And he certainly did not see what God saw when he looked at him. For what did God see that Paul didn't see? And how did he open his eyes? These are important questions to ask, not just regarding the conversion of Paul, but also regarding you and me. We all need to ask those questions. When God looks at you or me, our hearts and minds, what does he see? Are we blind? And if we are, how does he open our eyes? That's what I want to preach to you about this morning. It's about the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus. It's also about our own conversion. The text begins by telling us that Paul, who before his conversion was known as Saul, was on the war path against the disciples of the Lord. Saul was like a raging bull. He thought that the Lord God was really pleased with him because of the way that he 
defended his cause against all heretics. Saul was full of himself. The book of Acts introduces us to him in chapter 7 in connection with the death of Stephen. Stephen was one of the seven men chosen by the church and appointed by the apostles to be a deacon in the church at Jerusalem. And Stephen was a courageous and effective witness in the hands of the Lord. He spoke with much wisdom and was full of the Holy Spirit, and he led many people to believe in Jesus. For that reason, the leading Jews wanted him dead. They didn't like the competition. They didn't want to repent. And so that's exactly what they did. They put him to death. And Saul assent, assented to him being stoned. Stephen's death shows that the persecution against the church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem had begun in earnest. And now Christians are no longer safe in Jerusalem. And yet in spite of their warnings and threats, the church continued to flourish. However, the Sanhedrin, the Council of the Jews, realized that they did not make the impact that they had hoped. On the contrary, the number of believers increased dramatically. We got to do something about this. And so the Sanhedrin believed that they would have to take more drastic measures. The more radical members of the Sanhedrin, Paul as chief among them, now advocated the total annihilation of the Christians. However, instead of eradicating them, the opposite happens. For the persecution of the Christians caused the disciples of the Lord to move away from Jerusalem and to establish themselves throughout the world. The persecution acted like a seed box. The container sprung open and spread the seed of the gospel all over. This, of course, enraged the Sanhedrin even more, especially Paul. The text tells us that Paul was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And Paul's rage was not a rage for the moment. It wasn't a temper tantrum. No, it was a sustained rage. He didn't stop being angry. He was bound and determined to do all he could against that evil sect of the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. And so what does he do? Well, we learn from this account and from the parallel account in Acts 22 and 26 that he goes to the chief priests and asks permission to go to Damascus to seek out those belonging to the way and to bring them back with him in bonds so as to have them further dealt with in Jerusalem. And the high priest and the chief priests comply with his request. And Paul, together with a band of men, goes on his way to Damascus. Now from this it is clear that the Sanhedrin's influence was widespread. Its authority was recognized even beyond the borders of Israel. Of course, it extended only to the Jews, but nevertheless, with the apparent permission of the Roman authorities, the Sanhedrin could exercise its power even over those Jews in Damascus. Damascus was a foreign city. It's in the country of Syria, some 
150 miles, 225 kilometers from Jerusalem with the mode of travel during Paul's day, it would have taken about five days to get there. We know from Genesis 14 and 15 that that city already existed since the time of Abraham. Later, it was conquered by David and became part of Israel, only to regain its independence during the reign of Solomon. Ever since that time, the city became a hotbed of hostility against Israel. But by the time of Paul, Damascus had become part of the Roman Empire. And during that time, the city had gained quite a large population of Jews. Some estimate that it would have been at least 10,000 Jews in that city, but that is how many were killed a few decades later during the Jewish revolt against Rome. These Jews likely settled there because Damascus was an important commercial center where caravans from all directions in the ancient world converged and where many Jews and proselytes came to embrace the Christian faith. The text informs us Paul's rage was great. He is described in terms of a wild animal. We are told that he was breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And in chapter 26, verse 14, he is described as kicking against the, co the goats. That's what an ox does when he no longer wants to do as his master tells him. A goat was a sharp stick which was used to prod oxen to a more rapid pace. Feeling the goat, they would sometimes kick back and thereby wound themselves even more severely. Now, that's the way that Paul acted. He acted like an enraged ox. Of course, Paul didn't quite understand it that way. Paul was very sincere in what he was doing. He was not a hypocrite. He did not pretend to be somebody that he wasn't. No, as he says in chapter 26, he was convinced that he was doing the right thing in opposing the disciples of the Lord. He was absolutely sure that God wanted him to do what he was doing. He was sincere in his beliefs. For in his mind, Jesus Christ was a fraud. He was a convicted criminal. Jesus of Nazareth was a mere carpenter's son. But he claimed to be the son of God. He was a heretic. And that is why people rejected him and hung him on a cross. Yet in his name, his disciples did all kinds of things and made all kinds of claims about him. They even told everyone that salvation was through that carpenter's son. What a terrible blasphemy. And now thousands upon thousands of his fellow Jews believed in that man. These people have to be stopped. Paul saw himself as a pillar of the truth, a prominent member of God's covenant people. He was a learned man. He knew the scriptures well. His knowledge and abilities had been noted by his superiors. Indeed, he had sat at the feet of Gabriel because of his abilities and zeal. He had been entrusted with the responsibility 
to go to Damascus as an emissary of the Sanhedrin to root out that sect of the followers of Jesus. Paul really had something to be proud of. He was going places, a man to be reckoned with. You know what happens? Well, something quite extraordinary happens as he makes his way to Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed about him. In Acts 26, Paul himself relates that the light was brighter than the sun. It was a very bright light. It was a blinding light. You couldn't look into it. No wonder, therefore, that he and his companions fell to the ground. They were blinded by that light. The only thing that his companions saw was that light. But Paul, as we know from 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, saw more. It was at that time that the Lord Jesus revealed himself to him. Paul saw Jesus with his own eyes. And not only did he see him, he also heard his voice. All his companions heard was some noise. But Paul clearly heard the Lord address him personally. and spoke to him in the Hebrew language, that is in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now that will have been quite something for Paul, brothers and sisters. Most unexpected. Paul had hardened himself in his sin. He had heard the preaching of Stephen and he had shut his ears and his eyes. He did not want to hear what he had to say. He had a closed mind. If Stephen and the apostles were telling the truth, then his whole world would come tumbling down. For he had invested his whole life into what he was now. There was a lot at stake to forsake his beliefs, he would have to forsake everything he had stood for since his youth. He had to forsake his friends, his influence, his future, his standing in the community. That's not something that's easily done. And Paul was a man of convictions. Now, it doesn't mean that Paul didn't have nagging doubts. No doubt his conscience pricked him when he heard Stephen make his defense. For what Stephen said made a lot of sense. It bothered him. It made him think. How do I know this? Well, that is why, as the Lord Jesus told him, he was kicking against the goats. That is because his conscience was pricking him. He became conflicted. He became disturbed. He became unsure of himself. He knew deep down that his own belief system was a false one. It brought him no peace, no satisfaction. It did not bring to mind the character of God. And so in denying the truth, he was only hurting himself just like an ox who kicks against the goat. Once Satan gets you in his grip, he doesn't easily let go. He wants you to hang on to your false beliefs and practices and your false sense of security. And he is out to destroy you. Only a miracle can snatch you out of his clutches. And the miracle it took, a dramatic one. 
with the other apostles, all the Lord Jesus had to say was, follow me. And follow they did. Oh, sure, a lot had to happen before they became ready to embrace Christ as the Messiah and to surrender totally to him. But when he called, they did follow him. With Paul, it was much more dramatic. The Lord Jesus had to literally stop him dead in his tracks. And the words that he spoke to him were not, follow me. Those words Paul had already refused to listen to when he heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ from the mouth of Stephen. No, his words were, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was a voice of judgment. Jesus of Nazareth, whom he had declared and believed to be dead and buried, now stood before him alive in heavenly glory. And now he points his finger at him and accuses him. Now Paul's whole world is proven to have been a failure in his misguided zeal he thought that he had done nothing wrong those whom he had been persecuting are the Lord are the children of the Lord God himself however they are his precious children the apple of his eye they belong to him note well that the Lord Jesus says that Paul had been persecuting him he identifies himself with his people Jesus of Nazareth and his followers are one. They belong together. As the Lord Jesus had said while he was still on earth, whatever you do to them, you do to me. And so now Paul realizes at that moment that he stands condemned. And that is why he asks meekly, who are you, Lord? Paul needs confirmation. His whole Life is at stake. For he thought that he had been building God's kingdom. He thought that he was doing God's work. And so, if that were indeed Jesus of Nazareth standing before him, then instead of being a builder, he was a destroyer. And then his whole life would be nothing more than a terrible, sinful, stinking, and hopeless mess. What a terrible realization at that moment. And so he asks in desperation, is that really you, Lord? He dares ask the question. And note well that Paul no longer speaks as the proud Pharisee he was only moments ago. No, for else the question would have been different. Then he would have said in his pride, why are you accusing me? Do you not zeal? Do you not see with what zeal and diligence I have done my work for the sake of the kingdom of God? Do you not see that I'm doing God's work? So he asks, Who are you, Lord? And immediately he gets an answer I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. His thoughts are confirmed. There is that name that he hated so much, there is that name by which he was convinced that so many people were being misled by. Paul had to hear that name being spoken. I am Jesus. And Jesus is alive. 
He is that majestic and glorious figure before him. Paul did not need to be told that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of the living God. At that moment, Paul knew. He knew who he was. And now Paul also knows that he is doomed. He is stripped naked before his maker. And that once proud Pharisee lies prostrate on the ground. He is a totally defeated man. He is completely at God's mercy. All that he has ever done means absolutely nothing. He is a total and complete failure. All he has to offer God is refuse. And that's what he also realizes later on. For that is what he says about his works to the letter, in his letter to the Philippians. He says there in chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his, seek, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the point that he had to come to. And here on the road to Damascus, Paul gains Christ. In spite of his sins, the Lord God does not consume him in his anger. No, he continues to speak to Paul. He wants to use it. He wants to use him. How is that possible? Indeed, brothers and sisters, the Lord God can only use those whom he has completely humbled. He can only use empty vessels so that he can fill them with his spirit. He can only use those who at one time in their lives have dared to ask the question, Who are you, Lord? For those who ask that in humility, in a true desire to know him, dare to be confronted with their sins. For you cannot truly confess that name without first be willing to be convicted of your sins. Have you ever come to that point in your own life, brothers and sisters? Most of us here in this building have grown up in the faith and been a member of the church all of our lives. That's wonderful. But it's easy to take your salvation for granted. The Lord also wants to humble you and me. He wants that to you and me. He wants to do that to you and me this morning as well. Have you ever come to the conclusion in your own life what a mess you really are? I have. It's not necessarily because you or I have done such horrible things. No, it is because that when you look at yourself, you realize what a miserable creature you really are. How throughout your life, you so often have had the wrong zeal for the wrong things. When you realize how weak and dependent you are on God's grace, when you realize who the Almighty God is and who you are in comparison to Him, and then you cry out to God for forgiveness for your sins, and you thank Him for bringing you time and again back on that straight path that leads to salvation. 
To humble yourself before God means that you are willing to deny yourself, to deny your will. Else you will not see God for who he is, and you will not see yourself for who you are either. When you come to that point, then that means that you are willing to renounce everything that you own as well. All your earthly goods, including your loved ones, your children, your marriage partner, your parents, your farm, your business, your friends, your reputation. You put it all at his disposal. That's what Saul had to do. Or that's what Paul had to do at that moment. And that's what you and I have to do time and again. Are you also willing to do that, brothers and sisters? Do you sometimes ask yourself who that Jesus really is, who the Lord Jesus is, or are you blind, too blind to realize how badly you need to call upon the name of Jesus? Are you too blind to your own sins that you think you are righteous in yourself? that you're doing okay without God? Are you too attached to this world and everything that it has to ever offer that you don't want to change? Are you trying to make a name for yourself here on earth? Is the flesh ruling you or God's spirit? Before his conversion, Paul's flesh was ruling him. He wanted the praise of men. He wanted the praise of God. As the Pharisee that he was, he wanted everyone to see how zealous he was for the Lord. But look at how God deals with him, how he humbles him. He breaks through his pride and he teaches him the way of the Lord. After he is struck with physical blindness, the Lord Jesus says to him, But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Note well that the Lord Jesus does not right away talk to him about the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't. Of course, he doesn't reject him. On the contrary, he wants to use him. But Paul, at this point, still had something to learn. He had to put his life into the hands of God. He has to be totally humble. And that is why he is now also left in his humbled state. He is left in uncertainty. He doesn't know exactly what God's plans for him are. That's also how God deals with us, brothers and sisters. He leaves us in the dark sometimes. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the future holds. Paul is left in the dark figuratively and literally, for he is left blind and dumb. He is totally at the mercy of of others. They have to lead him around. His fellow travelers know that something quite out of the ordinary has happened. They had seen the light and they had heard the noise, but they saw no one and did not hear the actual words that were spoken. They had been struck dumb for the moment. Quickly, however, they find their bearings, but not Paul. He remains totally blind, and in that state he is led by the hand into Damascus, he was there for three days without sight, and Paul neither ate nor drank. And we may wonder, why did God struck him blind? 
For when Jesus was on earth, he did exactly the opposite, didn't he? He healed the blind. He opened their eyes. He gave them sight. But now it's the other way around. You would think that now the time for healing has come. But that's not the case here. Brothers and sisters, the Lord God and his women, in his wisdom left Paul in the dark on purpose. Paul had to shut out his surroundings so that he could reflect. Up to this point, he had been blind to the truth. The only way that his eyes could be completely open to the truth would be upon reflection. He had to think about what it all meant. He had to be totally convicted of his sins. He had to see that he was dependent on God alone, that he was at his mercy as we all are. At one point, the Lord Jesus in his ministry said to a blind man whom he had just healed, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. John 9, verse 39. It was now in his darkness that Paul could gain his sight. He could gain further insight into what he had done, into his own terrible sinfulness. We are told that Paul did not eat or drink for three days. As a Pharisee, he would have been used to fasting, but he did it twice a week. That's because he did it because of the law of the Pharisees. But now it's much different. It was done out of mourning. Paul was mourning because of his sins. His whole world had come crashing down. He lost everything. He came to the conviction, as he later relates to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, that he was the foremost of all sinners. What a realization. We're not told exactly what went through his mind in those days, but no doubt it was much the same as what went through the mind of David after he was convicted of his sin against Bathsheba. He wrote down his thoughts at that time and have them passed down to us in Psalm 32 and 51. He writes that his sins were constantly before him. God's hand weighed heavily upon him. His strength was sapped. He had no appetite. He lost everything. But Paul knows one thing. It's a new beginning for him. God did not consume him in his anger. No, he was merciful to him. He allowed him to live. God has a purpose for him here on earth. Wonderful. Indeed, soon Ananias will come to him, his eyes will be opened, and he will be given a task. And the same thing is true for you and for me, brothers and sisters. The Lord God also allows us to exist. Isn't that wonderful? And he keeps on calling us back on the right track, on the road to salvation. How often do you and I not go off track? We take a certain road in life that will eventually take us to destruction. We establish a certain sinful pattern. And we are oblivious to what God is saying to us in our hearts. And we are kicking against the goats. And then the Lord God comes to us. His hand is at times heavy upon us. And in one way or the other, he humbles us. 
God, either directly or indirectly through others, points his finger at you and at me, and he says, why do you keep on going down that same down rotten track? Why are you so intent on always being right? Why are you so arrogant? Why do you deliberately fall into the same sins time and again? Do you know what you're doing? Do you see the wrong path that you are choosing? And in one way or the other, God will, you and me, will bring you or me to our knees. Be thankful that he does. The wonderful thing is that God is merciful. He wants us to come to repentance time and again. It is a daily repentance. He wants you and me to be obedient. And in the end, Paul was. And what a blessing he became. Paul became a most effective instrument in God's hands. Are you? Am I? Do you allow yourself to be convicted of your sins? For only then will you gain insight into yourself. Oh sure, God sometimes leaves us in the, mar in the dark for a while. But continue to seek him while you are in darkness and you will find him. He will open your eyes. Brothers and sisters, you and I, we're often blind to our sins, aren't we? But God wants to open our eyes. It may seem that some people are beyond help and hopelessly in the grip of Satan, but not to God. The conversion of Paul shows that that is not the case. The Lord came to Paul with his Holy Spirit, and he made him a new man. And if he could do that through Paul, then he can do that to anybody, also to you and to me. And that, beloved, is our comfort. There is no greater comfort than that. God loves you and me in spite of our sins. And he has a purpose for us. He wants to use us in the furtherance of his kingdom. But that can only happen if you and I are willing to lose everything first as Paul did. As the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 25, For whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Amen.